Hi, folks. Welcome to another episode of Your Path to Nonprofit Leadership, the podcast that explores the very best in productivity and professional development in the nonprofit space. I'm your host, Patton McDowell, and delighted to bring you today's conversation with Shannon Henson, who brings to life the numbers behind nonprofits, uh, which I think is particularly important since many of us, when we began our journey, probably rely more on the emotion of our cause and pulling on the heartstrings to get the attention and support of those outside our nonprofit. But as Shannon will remind us, the numbers are powerful and there is no one to bring the numbers to life better than she will in this episode, bringing advice that she learned throughout her journey, as well as some of the key numbers, in fact, three key data points she believes every nonprofit should be tracking and using in their messaging to various communities. As always, there are great resources linked on the show notes associated with this episode. And without further ado, enjoy this conversation with Shannon Henson. Shannon, thank you for joining me on the path today. And I'm grateful for your conversation. You have had a fantastic leadership journey in the nonprofit sector. And as I recall, you, you didn't exactly start on the nonprofit side. So tell us how you did get into the nonprofit world. Yeah, I was in software development and training sales and marketing for um, several years. And as part of that, uh, one of the corporations that I worked for, they required that we do some sort of community service and actually directed that through um, involvement with the Charlotte Chamber, which at the time had a program for computer access in neighborhoods. And I just started going to meetings and they said, we want to get some grant funding. And I didn't know what that meant, but they told me where to go and how to do some research. And I was a willing and able party and I just jumped right in and I did a little bit of fundraising through the Junior League for an event. And I started to think, this is kind of fun. I enjoy this. And it's kind of comparable to sales and marketing or making a pitch. And I knew someone that worked for a nonprofit in fundraising. I connected with them. I just said, can we go to lunch? We'd love to hear about what you do in your daily work and, and what gets you excited about that. And it turns out they were hiring for an annual fund position. And this person thought my skills would translate, you know, my sales background and the rest is history. Lots of on the job learning, um, lots of things that did translate from sales, but um, had a lot to learn, um, which I was fortunate enough to be able to do in, through mentors and trainings and so on and so forth. But um, yeah, that's kind of how I ended up in nonprofit and it's just been a thrilling journey ever since. I've just loved every bit of it. <laughs> that's fantastic. And Love the fact that you acknowledge, but I guess I'm using the term lateral entry because many of us, uh, you know, didn't go to college and expect to be in the nonprofit field, but we found, like you did, transferable skills. And it sounds like a passion for the cause. I mean, is that fair? I don't mean to be cliche, but did you just feel like working in the nonprofit sector would be more fulfilling at some level? I think I didn't know at the time 
how much of a calling or how fulfilling it would be for me. Right. I think I was looking for something else. You know, I was in a very, in the sales, it was very transactional. Transactional. It was very driven by commissions and all that's well and good, but it just, there was something about it that just did not feed my soul. But I don't know that I knew that or could articulate that at that point. It's only when I got into the work that I thought, wow, this is so vitally important to this community, but it also is fulfilling a part of me that I, again, I just didn't know at the time that I was missing. Um, But I think what it taught me is uh, a couple of things, one of which I will always follow work that is motivating to me or inspiring to me from now on. I will seek that out. And also for when I hire other people, it is probably the number one driver for me is that someone is connected or motivated by the work and the mission and that they are a fit uh, for that work. So it's kind of come full circle in that way for me that it's personally inspiring and important. But I also seek that out in people that I hire or in my team members. Love that. And and I want to help trace your journey because I know there were lessons you learned early, perhaps some surprises early, mm-hmm. that it sounds like now you're applying as a, a senior leader at the Habitat organization now, but that's exactly what I want to talk about. Although one of my standard questions, as you know, Shannon, sure. and I think you would uh, absolutely agree, I think people that are not in nonprofit uh, underestimate sometimes the volume of activity <laughs> that we yeah. uh, have to manage. So I, that's why, of course, this podcast has a partial theme of productivity. You got to sure. be organized to stay, if not ahead, at least keep up. But let me start with that question for you. How do you keep yourself organized in what I know is a very busy and complex role that you have now? It is very busy and complex. And uh, one part of that is I just I have great staff and great peers, of course, but for my own personal um, kind of time management or keeping, you know, as productive as I can be, um, I schedule time on my calendar. And I say this to my directors all the time. Sadly, we have to schedule in time for certain projects. So I do a couple of hours per week. I call it project triage. I keep that very sacred. I would like for it to be dedicated to just strategic time and strategic thinking or freeform thinking. But sometimes it is truly triage. It is, you know, oh gosh, here we are and, you know, a week has gone by and I have not done these pressing, you know, things on my to-do list. Um, But regardless, I do keep that very sacred and my staff is aware that I schedule that time. My my boss is aware I have that time. And um, again, I do encourage my staff to do the same as well because a lot of times I hear from them, I don't have time to think strategically. We're too busy on the, you know, day to day. And um, I said, well, you schedule the time. You got to make it on the calendar. It's important. Put it on the calendar. Um, So that's one thing for me. Um, Also, just having alignment with my boss over the things that I'm focusing on and making sure that um, kind of where what I'm doing for the next call it six weeks, maybe it's even 12 weeks out that these are the priority areas and focus for me. Do these align with where you think I should be spending my time? Which just really helps to keep those pressing things at the forefront and just always kind of on my radar. Love those concepts. So project triage, in essence, making sure you calendar 
And that's time alone. In other words, that's not yes, a, a just team time alone discussion. Okay. Yeah, just time alone. Yours. And and it sounds like also being strategic and I guess forward thinking with your boss. In other words, I know you have lots of conversations with your boss, but you're saying you try to be proactive as to what's coming up on the calendar. Right. And just so that she knows kind of where my focus areas, where the most majority of my time is being spent, that that feels right to her. And she trusts obviously my instincts and my expertise, uh, but I do like to share that with her and just make sure I'm getting buy-in from her on where I'm spending the majority of my time, especially because then I think if there are pain points or I need to help or extra support, I'm, I'm making the case for that in that instance as well. Uh, it's a great point. And I've had conversations with folks, particularly new to the field. I think that maybe don't establish a good communication channel with their boss and, and mm -hmm. the boss is busy also. And it's easy sometimes I think to kind of get distracted. And then, um, I take it you encourage from your team, a similar kind of, uh, communication style. Absolutely. I mean, I think it goes two ways, right? There's always giving feedback to my staff here, are the things and, and, and feedback I have for you, but I'm also asking them, what do you need from me? You know, what do you need more of for me? Or how can I help you um, to get a certain item across the line? You know, maybe if they're struggling. And, and I say this all the time. I, was, I just said it yesterday to one of my direct reports is if you don't tell me that you need help, I, I can't help you. But I am here to support you, whether it be through, you know, more hands, um, technology, different resources, whatever that may be. But we have to have that open communication and exchange. Um, no one's on an island, right? We're all working exactly. together and being collaborative. And there are times when we have to have all hands on deck. Um, you know, we want to be on the, um, you know, be working proactively, but sometimes you get in that situation where we're just maybe a little too far, far from the course and we need extra help. So yes, I definitely encourage that with my staff. Well, and those are great, I think, lessons. And, and we're going to cover your journey because I think they're unique lessons that I guess I'm describing as three phases and, and you've got points I know in each of them when you started kind of as you moved into leadership roles and then now that you are in a leadership role what you're looking for as you hire as you manage as you evaluate and I know that will be helpful to folks that are listening in but let me first give you a chance to Tell us what you do. Um, you know what? what, I, <laughs> what I've do I? To Habitat. <laughs> I've said it's complex, but yeah, what do you do, Shannon? At Habitat what do Shoals? I do? Yeah. Oh, uh, you know, I well, my title is the Vice President of Organizational Advancement and Development, which is the wordiest title, and I'm not sure I exactly know what all it means, other than just you know, make it happen, right? right. Um, so, you know, I oversee fundraising, volunteer services marketing communications and advocacy for the affiliate. So we have about a team of about 20 people um, that work on my team. And, um, you know, it's obviously a great or an inspiring organization. Um, so I, you know, my pleasure is just to connect people with um, doing great hands-on work for affordable housing in Charlotte in whatever way is inspiring to them, whether it be through volunteerism or being an advocate for the cause or for policy changes um, or making a financial investment in our mission. So it's not just fundraising, obviously. There's advocacy, there's volunteer, is, is marketing. You, you marketing, have, mm -hmm. right? marketing communications, yes, correct. Wow. 
And I always say to, you know, marketing communications should always be uh, in part of development or reporting to development because all messaging, except for what we say, obviously, to clients or prospective uh, recipients of our services, all messaging is to donors or prospective donors. Um, So I just like to always underscore that piece. And I would fight for that uh, to be a part of the development department if it wasn't. I made that a case of one of my moves. You're exactly right, mm-hmm. Shannon. Although, did, did you not face some, I guess, marketing folks who would say, no, we're, we market and communicate for the entire organization, not just fundraising. And of course, there's a bit of an eye roll when they say that, but you're making the case that no, donors do represent everything. Sure. And I think I, I have seen a little bit of that. You know, when I first started, I think our messaging was very focused on Habitat and Habitat doing the work. And there was a shift for our marketing team, but uh, they really embraced it and came along pretty quickly um, with some outside training and, and, and expertise. It wasn't just me making the case. Um, definitely had them exposed to uh, some training that was more donor centric but focused on communications, um, just some meetings and some collaborative work of evaluating what we were doing and, and definitely encouraging them to participate in the, the change and the shift in how we were doing our marketing. Um, but they were they were on board. It just wasn't what we had done historically. Um, Got it. Here. That, I think that's a fascinating topic, and we could definitely yeah. explore that mm-hmm. another time too because sure. um, I would contend with you that if we do a good job to donors, th- that does benefit every element of the organization. It, it's right. not just a kind of attempt to solicit dollars, but it is to elevate the organization in a way that's meaningful to the outside world. Um, but let's go back down your memory lane to mm-hmm. those early days you referenced when you had an inspiration to get into nonprofit. You had transferable skills, but you took that first nonprofit job. What, what surprised you? Uh, Do you recall certain things that you thought maybe would happen and perhaps weren't exactly as you expected? I don't know that I had a clear expectation of what I was getting into. Um, You know, I didn't know what annual fund was. I didn't know the terminology. I think that was kind of surprising is that while I had transferable skills, and I know that now, obviously, very clearly here 17 years later, but I... I think the the language was different. And so in, until I became part of the Association of Fundraising Professionals and went to some trainings like Fundamentals of Fundraising and those types of things, I don't think I understand the language. You know, I didn't know what a, I mean, in sales, we would have different terms, but I didn't know LAPS or LIBUN or CYBUN, you know. So I think just um, once I kind of understood the vernacular, it was just a lot easier for me to talk the talk. Um, I think I was just surprised at the lack of resources for nonprofits that we do expect our staff. We we write this job description for an annual fund manager, but then we're asking them to do so much more. And really, you know, when we look at their percentage of time of what we really need them to be doing in an annual fund, it might be half the time, you know. Um, wow. So I think just the volume of work, I think um, I was I was surprised at how driven it was by the data and the numbers. And that was something that was also a little foreign to me, but I had the advantage of, um, I mean, maybe I didn't realize it was a blessing at the time, but we were doing a database conversion in my first year. And 
I really just learned the ins and outs of the, the data base and the data so well early on and how that went that drove decisions um, for how we were corresponding with donors or treating donors um, was so much data driven and it was just so early. My foundation was in using that data and responding in that way that I it continues to impact my work even today. Um, and I still get really excited by it. I love looking, you know, drilling down and looking at different segments and and trends and, and histories of what donors have done and their behaviors because it really can tell a story. And I think I learned that early on, but it was surprising to me because I didn't know that that was maybe a part of the job. It wasn't maybe described to me in that way. Um, it was a, definitely an on-the-job learning. That's a great point. And I know that's a thread we'll continue through our conversation that perhaps folks that come in purely in a sales mindset or a programmatic mindset don't realize the value of the numbers. It sounds like you got a perfect on-the-job orientation to numbers and how they could translate into the success of your annual fund at that point. That's right. That's right. I mean, again, maybe by accident, but yes, it was a blessing. I also would take a takeaway, Shannon, that I've seen also the the use of of appropriate terminology. I've Mm -hmm. run into folks, as I know you have, who come from the for-profit side. They talk sales talk Mm -hmm. and, and again, acknowledge that they do have transferable skills, but it was important, I guess, for you to understand the language and frankly, use the language of nonprofit if you're trying to get into that field. Yes, I mean, and, and again, that's something a little bit foreign because I don't know where you really learn that without doing some professional development or some outside, you know, skills. Um, and I, uh, you know, here even at Habitat, I've sent my database person um, to Fundamentals of Fundraising because she kept saying, I, I know what you, I sort of understand what you're trying to do when you want me to run reports or you want me to pull data, but you know, she didn't understand maybe why, right? The context. Right. Right. And so we sent her to Fundamentals of Fundraising and just so she could hear some of that terminology and she could understand kind of the donor cycle and why we do what we do. And I think it was really valuable for her to, again, maybe hear it from someone else or hear it in a different setting, um, really proved to be valuable. Um, so I think there's Obviously, we're going to send our development people to continuing education, and we have a lot of offerings, but I think there are support roles um, or other roles throughout the organization that can benefit, um, you know, from from having that kind of training as well and understanding the language and, and, and why we need what we need and why we're why we're looking for that data or those data pools. That's a great kind of leadership awareness point. And you're right. It's not just the frontline fundraiser that needs to be conversant in that kind of terminology that everybody needs to understand and their contributions are more evident, I'm sure. Uh, Well, Shannon, as you got settled in that role, when did you start thinking, you know what, I'd like to advance along this leadership path, if you'll allow me to continue to use that path analogy. Yeah, Uh, sure. Did it it take a a couple of years? (laughs) Did it take a couple of years to kind of get settled? Or when did you say, hey, I want to move up? I'm trying to remember kind of how many years that was, but, you know, annual fund was still, even though my former organization had a a pretty good annual fund program, it was, it still could have a lot of improvements and it could grow and, and be more developed. And so 
it was just so such interesting work to me that I definitely did it for many, many years and just enjoyed it. I was just really, it's so foundational to everything we were doing. And I think there were just so many um, twists in the path, if you will, to just, I could go so many different directions, even in growing that. So I just, I really loved the work so much. I was fulfilled for several years in just doing annual fund and kind of growing that program um, and, and having it, you know, be more seasoned or mature there. And then um, I guess it was just recognized that I had some natural talent for the relational piece or the relationship management, you know, the prospecting and the relational piece. And so I ended up doing um, a little bit of major gifts and more focus on leadership donors for a couple of years moving out of annual funds. So I ended up hiring someone um, to run the annual fund and then she was providing kind of that feeder, you know, she was feeding the pipeline for me and my boss at the time and our CEO. And so we really at that time were starting to do some real moves management and just, you know, really starting to um, advance our donor program. And so I just, I love that as well. I love just working directly with donors and, and obviously that kind of fed my um, sales background and experience too of kind of that, um, you know, it's very similar that kind of the hunt, right? The, the prospecting right. and the, the making the ask and closing the deal, if you will. I mean, very, very similar and very parallel um, skill sets there. And so that was very satisfying to me. Um, so I guess, I don't know if I was, I was just doing my job and loving my job. And I think mm. there were others around me that were acknowledging that I was advancing or could advance and do more. And instead of, and I was moving into, instead of doing the kind of tactical pieces, I guess I was just naturally becoming part of strategic conversations as I went along. So I kind of fell into that. Um, and I think that's something you learn too as, a, a, as you get further in your profession is you learn to advocate for yourself a lot more and make the case for yourself a lot more. And I don't know that I was good at doing that early on. Interesting. Um, but, but you I did well for my yeah. staff now. Yeah, I, yeah, I mean, I your, well. <laughs> your performance spoke for itself and clearly leadership sure. saw your potential. Um, sure. Having been through that, now that you're on the leadership side, what do you look for as you evaluate leadership or potential of folks that are on your team or teams? What what characteristics are you looking for to kind of illustrate that same potential that your, your bosses saw in you? Well, I think it just what I briefly touched on there about not, I didn't know to be an advocate for myself early on or make the case for myself advancing like I do now, you know, and I, and I think I encourage my staff to do that now. For Some people naturally do that, right? They just are going to come to you and say, here are the things I've achieved recently or um, that I'm working on. You just have some people that are, that are more proactive about that. But I encourage all of my reports and really all the staff on our team, I, I would hope, would feel confident enough in what they're doing that they would um, be having those discussions with their managers. But I, I am looking for someone who um, gets excited about the work and, you know, is looking to do more that's coming to me with ideas and saying, you know, I've been thinking about um, these three strategies that I know we're going to be working on or moving towards and here's some ideas that I have. You know, I like someone that really is taking initiative and really, again, you know, making, they're proud of their work and they're making a case for themselves. I think that's something that we, you know, 
a lot of people don't do or were scared to do it for some reason. Um, But I like to see that. And um, I like to see that passion coming through in in the work and the ideas, the initiative that people are taking. So I'm kind of looking for that. Um, There are people that just naturally aren't comfortable um, tooting their own horn, if you will. And, And not to say they get overshadowed. I do try to look and you know look for talent or recognize people that um maybe are just more quietly doing their work um so not saying they get overshadowed but i think that um i like to encourage that among everyone let's talk about all the all the things you've done or achieved in this last quarter and and tell me about you know what you're working on or your ideas ahead and um, just getting everybody to become comfortable with um you know sharing that Uh, i love that you recognize that because i I think quite honestly, a lot of the nonprofit sector does a poor job with evaluations. And so yeah. they're very kind of rote HR mm-hmm. style, what you do. And then I would suggest a lot of um, leadership with their employee meetings are all about kind of fires burning. And it sounds like you're suggesting we should be proactive, not bragging, but we need to be proactive about the good things going on. I mean, so you encourage your folks to literally share those accomplishments and, and be proactive in doing so. Right. And, and I think to your point about evaluations is that there are certain responsibilities of the job that they're, they're the responsibilities of the job. You know, I'm, I mean, it's, it's a non-negotiable, right? I'm, I'm, this is your job. This is the, we've set the expectation. You're going to do these things. And then there's the above and beyond the initiative or the special projects, which I think, again, there's a lot of opportunity in nonprofits for that because of just lack of resources. We always have gaps in coverage for functional areas of our team. And right. we have those people that just take on more. They have more bandwidth. They can do more. They just, you know, are a higher, they can operate at a higher capacity and they just do. Um, and so I just like to make sure that we're, we're talking about the accomplished. We're celebrating what's good. I, you know, I think a lot of times too, as we move past, we just, we just take for granted sometimes that, you know, well, let me back up. I think we don't celebrate. We don't celebrate enough. Right. We, we met this goal. We achieved it and um, move on to the next thing. And so I think taking time to celebrate what's going well and then also having the real conversations about what's not working and going well. And is this that it's not a fit for this person's job or the person or it's something that we don't need to spend time on within the organization. It was at a time a need, and now it's not a good focus area for our team. So we need to adapt, you know, change. Um, but I, yeah, I think a lot of times we're just not doing a good job of having people celebrate and make the case for the good work that they're doing. You know, we just it's because I mean we're, I know we're busy and everybody's got a lot to do, but. Um, especially it's nonprofit, it's worth, yes, it's worth doing. Well, and good for you for kind of lifting up that culture, because again, I, I would contend a lot of managers, again, in their defense are busy, as you suggest, but yeah. it's worth slowing down enough to acknowledge that. And for all the reasons of morale and the advancement of your team, feeling like they can celebrate uh, the accomplishments that they deserve. Um, I guess moving yeah, along this path into leadership role that you have now, um, what are you looking for as you hire? I guess maybe people outside the organization, uh, listeners who are thinking about joining the nonprofit sector, perhaps like you as a lateral entry or 
uh, and that type of, of transfer. What are you looking for, and how do you advise someone thinking about that kind of move? You know, I would say nine times out of ten, I am hiring for fit and for a passion for the organization. What do you mean fit, and how do you evaluate fit? It's it's hard. You know, it really is one of those things. I can't explain it other than, you know, my team, when I sit on interviews to help them, they'll narrow down the candidate pool, and I'll usually sit in on the, the last maybe two, maybe three interviews they're doing, and they'll say, oh, I can just see your mind working. And and I kind of know just when I'm when I meet someone, if they'll be a fit for this organization and the culture of Habitat. Um, I imagine I will I will look at them. I'll kind of close my eyes and think, now, how is this person going to interact with so and so or will they work well with so and so on the program side or the construction side? So I'm I'm putting them in front of another staff person and trying to imagine what that conversation or that dynamic looks like. Right. I can't really explain it other than just it's almost this sixth sense that I have of just I feel like I know my team so well and I know this organization so well that I just kind of know if the person is going to be a good fit and authentic to this team. Um, a, a lot of the positions that we're hiring for, maybe until you get to an upper level director of development or maybe above that, I feel like a lot of the skills you can teach or you can train. And so that's why that fit is the critical piece for me. I'm really looking for someone, you know, the, the question, the most important question that I ask in for me um, is why do you want to work for Habitat and really how they answer. I can always tell from and I ask it early in the interview because if someone, you know, you can just tell if they they really care about what's going on at the organization, they or at least they've done their research and, and or have shown enough interest to cite a couple of of exciting uh, programs or or initiatives that we have going on, I can tell they've at least cared enough to do a little bit, and they've gotten excited about that. Um, I, you know, and it's and it's really because I feel like I could raise money for anything because the mechanics, you know, fundraising is is somewhat prescriptive. Um, it's very relational, but it's very prescriptive and kind of work in the donor cycle. And so I feel like if you're not passionate about the organization, uh, that should be the focus, you know, that you can raise money for anything, but really the personal why and connection to the organization is what really kicks it to the next level. I think for people, um, I did not have any involvement with Habitat ever had not stepped foot in a Habitat restore, had never built on a Habitat work site. I mean, I knew about Habitat, like I feel like most people know what we do, but I was passionate about helping families and especially children. So I knew when I was making a move, I wanted to work for families. And so again, while I could raise money for anything, I mean, you know, tactically, I want to feel passionate about it because the story, the personal why, the connection, that is what is the secret sauce to me. That's what makes a big difference. So I try to assess that in an interview as much as you can when you're having, you know, what, 45 minutes with someone to get to know, (laughs) to get to know them and what drives them. Um, But usually I can get a pretty good read on that. And that's why that question is my most important. Why do you want to work here? Why, what about Habitat is inspiring to you? Um, So at least I would say to people, you know, do, do some research. I'm still surprised at the amount of interviews that I go into that people 
you know, have no answer for that or, or a very generic response to why do you want to work for this organization? I can tell they haven't been on the website. They haven't thought about it. So I would suggest to people to spend a little time to get to know the organization. If you want to work there and raise money and connect people with the powerful work of the, of the mission, then know something about the organization. Um, and I also like when someone comes, if they are a lateral, a lateral um, move, that they come to me with some examples of how they see it translating to fundraising. You know, that they've done a little bit of homework to say, you know, I was in um, mortgage processing and I want to move to doing fundraising at Habitat. And in mortgage processing, I spoke to clients on a regular basis and developed relationships and I tracked this information in a um, in a database and I sent follow-up reminders or notes and I had this kind of conversion to people that applied to people that closed. You know, I want to see, I mean, come to me with some very tangible, um, transferable skills and show me that you've done a little research on that, you know, the donor cycle at least, or what that looks like. Great advice. Back to your point of knowing the language of nonprofit and not just trying to kind of steamroll your language from the for-profit mortgage business or whatever exactly but but translate it and and of course your advice is great about you don't want somebody to show up just to speak to the technical skills of the job description but why i genuinely want to work for your organization i guess it gets back to your original point of fit because if they don't have that why then their technical skills probably aren't going to cover that up yeah, and I mean, like, I've become one of those people in nonprofits now that I, I do get a little miffed or offended when someone's coming from corporate and they are using that language and haven't taken the time and attention and they think they're going to come in and solve nonprofit. You know, let me come save the little nonprofit, you know. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, I've done a lot of eye rolling, you know. <laughs> frustrating. It is frustrating. But I've they, become one of those people. Yeah. And I think there is that. And I've you and I both have had coffee with folks that I think have good intention. Sure. It is kind of I can come rescue you, Shannon, because yeah. I've been in the for profit world. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, so have I. And guess what? It takes a lot. of You're going to be shocked <laughs> by the amount of work. And the, yeah, there you go. Get good, intentions. Yep. good intentions. Well, Shannon, I want to get to among the headlines of all. Yeah. You've got great advice already for folks in the field or considering the field. And I have seen you present uh, remarkably well on what someone might first say, God, that sounds kind of dry, which is, is dry. the numbers, <laughs> data. <laughs> really, Shannon? I do I really have to know that? I know, but, I know. Uh, yes, you do have to you know that. <laughs> would suggest, yeah, one, you need to know it, but let's talk about why should someone, again, if I were programmatic or in pure kind of sales and fundraising, Tell us why we need to know the numbers. What kind of numbers do we need to know and how do we turn that to our advantage? You know, I think like in every business um, and, and in life decisions, right, we need information. We need the information and the data points in order to be able to make the best decisions. And like my mom says, you know, you made the best decision you know, with the information you had at the time that you made the decision. And so without that, I don't know how you, you, you create a strategy or create a job description or determine how you prioritize your time without having the data. Right. Um, so I think, you know, there are a couple of things, if, you know, if I can only choose really one area to focus on, on the donor data and looking at that, it would be around retention. Um, and how important that is for 
um, you know, again, making our decisions and determining where we want to spend the priority time. And it's not that we don't pay attention to the other numbers or that we don't want to focus on acquiring new donors. That's important too. Right. But the retention, you know, the numbers just don't lie. That's one thing I love about data as well is that this isn't Shannon's opinion on this. I mean, the, this is real information, tried and true, um, that, you know, other organizations are tracking and are kind of industry standards, if you will. So the numbers I really like to look at, if you can only look at one or two things, because again, we all have a lot of job responsibilities. Some of us are working in single um, staff development offices. Um, some of us only have, some organizations just have volunteer fundraisers, is looking at someone who has given three or more has given a gift for three or more years because if you have given a gift to me for three or four years you have a 72 percent retention rate um on average of of continuing to give right i have a i have a 72 percent retention rate if you've given three or four years in a row and that goes up to 84 percent once you've given five years Okay. So if there's only a little bit of time in the day, that's where I want to spend my time. Take care right? of those I mean, people. Taking care, care of those, those people. people, right? Yeah. And if there's a second kind of tier to that, it's people that are giving multiple gifts within a year. So if someone gives you two gifts within a year, they have a 63% retention rate. If they give three or more, it goes up to 86%. And wow. I think a lot about the Adrian Sargent, which a lot of us, you know, their beloved, um, a data expert in the fundraising world, he says, you know, improving donor retention by just 10% can double the lifetime value of your donor database. I mean, well, that's pretty compelling, you know, um, and again, I'm not making that up. That's, you know, <laughs> these are, these are industry-wide statistics and what we should be seeing in our nonprofits. I don't think many track it. Talk about lifetime value of a donor. What do you mean? Right. So lifetime value of a donor, this is looking at um, all the fundraising, all the gifts that have come in for the year for you and and figuring out that average um, that average gift amount. Right. And so we're looking at the average gift and then you're looking at retention. So, again, I can't do simple number. I'm trying to do a simple number in my head on this. If you have donors, this might have to be edited for a. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, no, there's no math quizzes. Editing, at all, no math, I know, right. So if your donor retention, let's just say for simple math, is, is 50%, yeah. and you're getting in, um, all right, let me think about it. We'll scratch, let me scratch out a little number here so I can say this the right way. That. Um, we can do right. math on the fly here. You're math doing good. Math on the fly, math on the fly. This is put that, put that NDA to use. Um, <laughs> That's the thing. You don't do that, right? You don't do math on the black NBA. You have hours to take the test. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Not blind to... <laughs> and you get to estimate a lot in the NBA. So, you know, <laughs> we're not accountants. Well, um, while you're calculating, I'll just say yes. that, I mean, your point is so good. I think so many nonprofits are just enamored with the, the, the magical new donor. And your numbers um, are proving that there's so much more potential in just taking care of the people that are already given to you. Right? Right. Uh, why are you kind of running crazy chasing new money when these donors that stay with you over their lifetime are going to give you just multiples, right? I mean, that 
I guess conceptually as an English major, that's yeah. uh, <laughs> how I'm trying to to articulate it. But yeah, you tell me. Yeah, no, I think that's right. I mean, I think we have to work both strategies. I do think we can't let acquisition not be an important focus area. But I think if we only have a certain amount of time in the day, you know, we have to put the majority of the focus on the retention, those that love us the most. And we know too that it's not just about the dollar amount someone's giving. It's really about the frequency of giving and the longevity of giving. So I don't want to, you know, sometimes we get, um, I think caught up also on, oh, well, let's look at these numbers and only look at it for people who get $1,000 or more. Um, but there are those very loyal donors kind of below that radar that are giving very consistently or for consecutive years. You know, sometimes I'll go in and I'll go to make a thank you call for a donor and I'll, I'll notice that they've been giving for 25 years in a row. Wow. And I always make sure to say something or acknowledge that or on someone's acknowledgement letter, I always write something. I always go in before I put a note on a letter and I always look at what they've done, if they've upgraded or if they've given for many years in a row, I always write that on the acknowledgement letter, whether they read it or not. You know, I always think that's a nice touch to be able to say, I'm paying attention, you know, wow, thanks for upgrading your gift this year really is important because we're building 10 more houses this year. And I know that that's, you understand that and that's important. Or thanks for giving so many years. We've been around for 36 years and you are one of the tried and true. You've been giving every year for the last, you know, 25 years and are one of our biggest supporters. Because even if they're only giving $25 a year, they've given, there's something special happening there. They're telling you something, right? They're telling you that this is, they may not have a lot of money to give, but that you are their top, one of their top priorities because they're not gonna forget to give to you. Um, so I love that. I think that's, that's a really good. Um, given, that's a great point. And, and and I think many of us have made the mistake of we may mindlessly send that person the kind of generic thank you letter because their yeah. their dollar amounts lower. Right. But what a what a miss, right? That yeah. we fail to acknowledge the consecutive years. In fact, I'm hearing three kind of key data points. And correct me if if you would add or subtract. But retention number one, are they still giving? Consecutive year, paying attention to multi-year giving as a, a certainly significant uh, telltale sign. And and I guess folks that, that give more, do you track specifically, I guess what I call the bump up givers sure. is something triggered. I've been sure. giving you a hundred bucks a year, every year. Now all of a sudden I give you 250, something, something happened. Yeah. I want to know what that is, right? We're calling all the donors and a lot of times you don't get them on the phone, but um, you know, when I do, I'm asking what, what inspired you or what motivated you to give? Um, to give more, to increase your giving. And, um, you know, sometimes it's just because they had a better year at work and they just were able to give more. But often I find more than not, it's it's because of something we said, we, we were better at articulating the need or the urgency. And I feel like, again, that's a missed opportunity a lot of times for us is that we don't, um, you know, if, if we compare ourselves to for-profit and I think about like a Black Friday, you right. know, there's a, there's a sense of urgency and excitement there. There's a finality to it, right? I know that I can only get this percentage off on this day in this 12 hour period. Uh, I gotta, I gotta do this. I gotta react, react and respond. And there's just something about nonprofits that we're, I don't know if we're afraid to do that or we, you know, we, we're so passive in that regard. And I feel like we just don't do a good job of articulating that and saying, I really need you to um, 
upgrade your gift because, you know, we have 3% more in expenses this year than we did last year. And we've got to make it, but we can't do less building of homes. We have right. to continue to meet the need of affordable housing in Charlotte, but we're going to need this amount of dollars in this time frame in order to do this work. And I know that it matters to you. And I know I can count on you to increase your own personal gift by X percent to, you know, to be equivalent to what our increase is or what that may be. Um, I just wrote a letter this morning to a donor and a follow-up to a conversation this week. And I said, you know, we're doing 20 more projects this year in our repair program. And we have a gap, a funding gap of $4,000 for these projects. I've got to raise $80,000 more this year for this program. I know this program is important to you. And I'm asking that you give at least half of this donation, um, you know, for, for this program this year. And I just think, again, sense of urgency, timing, we're just, we have these loyal donors and we have people that want to upgrade or can upgrade. But I feel like we're not making the strong enough case to do that. We're just like, thank you so much for renewing. Oh, thank you. Oh, you gave a thousand. Please just give a thousand again. Don't forget <laughs> us, you know. And and oh, when really we should kind of shift that shift that messaging. I think a little bit. Let's be a little bit more straightforward in what we really need and in making the case a little strong. That's, more strong. that's great advice and a great example, frankly, of making the data come to life. And and you're appealing to the heart and the head there, right? The right. head, the data explains why you're asking for more. And then, of course, you appeal to their programmatic interests, why they give to Habitat, I guess, in the first place. And that strikes me as a very compelling way to get their attention and hopefully to give more money. Right. Exactly. Last question in this space, Shannon. This is fantastic. And I would challenge our listeners. I bet most of them in the nonprofit sector cannot answer the question about donor retention statistics for their nonprofit, consecutive year giving and or, uh, again, for lack of a better term, bump up strategy. How many donors from last year gave more this year? And if they would track those three things and pay more attention to them, they're going to raise more money. Would you okay. not yes. agree? Yeah, I agree. Absolutely. You should see those those numbers tick up across the board. Um, I think those are great focus areas, all three of those. But if you could only pick one of them, I would definitely pick the uh, retention, the probably the longevity, you know, people who are giving three or more gifts years in a row, if you will. Don't let them fall through the cracks, right? Don't let them that, fall. They had the highest retention fundamental. rates. Yeah. Right. Um, great advice, Shannon. And I knew you would, and, and you nailed it in that regard. Uh, again, I would encourage folks listening to consider those metrics as ones that are trackable. You know, they're not, you didn't tell them to go track 15 different uh, you know, highly technical fundraising stats. <laughs> like lifetime value. Can... Or... <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> we'll, we'll save I that for the next episode. <laughs> yeah, well, me either. So I think both of us are probably glad uh, we addressed the concept. Now we'll let someone else do the math, right? Um, but um, again, you answered my kind of fundamental question. I guess one more, and in particular, Habitat's a good example the being able to articulate earned versus contributed revenue. And I often contend that we as nonprofit professionals, while maybe as a fundraiser, we're on the contributed side. Um, we need to understand the model that is in your case, Habitat. Do you, do you find that's important for your team to be able to articulate? Not all the money, in other words, comes from philanthropy. Do you, how do you help articulate that to a donor who may not understand 
the overall business model of your nonprofit? Right. I think that is a, a real selling point for Habitat. And, um, you know, one of the reasons it was so attractive for me to work here is that there was such a diverse funding model that it wasn't just solely dependent on fundraising that we had the restore net profit proceeds, we had the mortgage receivables, um, you know, because I think it makes a really, it's a very sustainable model. And I think that's appealing to donors. Uh, so I like to be able to kind of break those numbers down and show them, you know, we do, we have a, a visual representation that we share with donors every year when we renew our collateral, we always have um, a piece that shows the financial breakdown of what we do and what all the revenue streams are. Um, and I think that we're good stewards of matching dollars when we have a growth in our programs and we're getting um, funding from a, from a, uh, an earned source. Um, when that increases, we need to um, increase contributed revenue. And so I think we can show, you know, in graphs and in, in different graphs and charts, we can make that case for um, we're getting more, for example, public funding for our repair program. And we match those dollars with contributed revenue. And so again, I can articulate that pretty clearly to say, we're going to do X number of new projects this year that have been funding, have been funded in part by earned revenue, if you will. And I right. need to match those with contributed revenue. So again, I'm not, I'm showing the donor the, the need. I mean, it's in the numbers, it's in the data. And so it's very clear. So I think that's a real advantage for us. So I, I like to make sure my team understands how important contributed revenue is, but also being able to talk about the entire financial picture and being able to talk donor through some of the highlights of that. Um, one thing for us is that we, in order to do exactly the same that we did, same business that we did last year, the same number of families served last year, it will cost us $1 million more. And that's because of increased expenses, mostly for land, but some other aspects too. And so just being able to have those talking points to say, you know, we, we do good work, and but we can't even do more work at this point in order to just be at steady state, it's still going right. to cost us more money. And some of that's going to come through earned revenue, but X percentage needs to come through you increasing your gift. And we know because you've given every year for the last 10 years, this is a, an important organization to you. Will you increase your gift by X percent? So I think just the staff understanding that and being able to articulate that is, um, is really important. And I think we have a, a great financial model to, to share. That's fantastic. And again, good advice and organizations, not all have that, but right. those that do ought to illustrate, right, that they have diverse revenue streams. And I would think donors appreciate that. Yeah. And I think also if you don't have diverse um, funding streams or if you're trying to start or increase the fundraising program, we also have to understand why that is. You know, I was talking with an organization recently and they said, you know, well, we want to start a fundraising program. We do a little bit and, you know, we want to, to raise more money. And I said, well, how much do you want to raise? And, and they, you know, couldn't articulate that. And I said, well, no, we got to tie this to something, right? right. We have to tie right. this to either a gap in your earned revenue, or we have to tie this to a program initiative or to increase number of families or people served. So we, we have to have something to lean on to make the case because our donors are very savvy and they're going to expect us to be able to paint the picture and tell us, you know, tell the story. 
great advice once again, and you have been full of great advice Shannon, <laughs> through this entire conversation. Seriously, I'm grateful for that. And I know we will uh, organize uh, our show notes associated with this episode uh, because you've referenced some some resources that I want to make sure we can link sure. to for folks that are interested. And that's a good segue to the final question. As you know, you and I have talked about good books, good uh, speaking of resources. Is there a book or two that you point to, maybe one that's inspired you in your professional development journey or one that you recommend in particular? You know, our senior staff at Habitat just finished reading Traction by Gina Wickman. It's a project management system, and we've been implementing that, I'd say, probably for the last going on six months. And when I read the book, I just loved it so much. Um, lots of uh Form, matrix and forms and, and charts and, and tools to use, which were all free and are all free at the website for the book. You don't even have to purchase the book, I think. Good and point. I bought the book for my, my team, my directors, and helped them, you know, kind of helped our strategic discussion and kind of rolling out. And I like it because uh, it has lots of focus areas, but one is on identifying these quarterly rocks, if you will, or kind of the big strategic goals. Because I think a lot of times we have our daily to-do list or our weekly to-do list, and those items are not the strategic items that we need to be working on. And so we tend they tend to get pushed to the side, the strategic items, because right. we're reacting, right? We're putting out the fires, like you said. So I really like that. It also has a section on issues, identifying issues, in your department, but also in your organization and solving for those and working on them um, collaboratively. And I just, it's been really, really great for our senior leadership and also for my department. I think we're in the infancy with it, but I think it's been helpful for my managers to um, just look across functional areas and make sure that, you know, do we have any issues or gaps in functional um, coverage or roles? So that's been really good. But the, my, my best, professional book that I've ever read. I think you gave me a copy of it. Um, it was the first 90 days. I still really? use, yeah, really? I still use that. So kudos <laughs> to you for passing along some, a good, re and I, I don't even have the copy anymore. I hope you didn't leave me a nice note in it because I gave it to someone. <laughs> <laughs> But you still remember, even if you can't find it. Well, I even do. If you can't find it. I do. And I and one thing I take, two things from that that I'll, I'll uh, speak to is the one is how much time do we spend on the offense versus the defense, which I think right. I've touched on a couple of things in our conversation on that. Yep. And then also the alignment, you know, getting alignment with your staff. But also that's when I refer to, you know, meeting with my CEO and that came back to my tool for staying organized is making sure that I have alignment, that there are no surprises for my boss, that I'm aligned on what I'm working on with what the affiliates working on and what's a priority for my team. Um, so those are just a couple of things for me that I take away and I kind of carry forward from that, but love that book as well. And it's probably my favorite professionally, although attractions, you know, coming, coming in, um, coming in hot lately, but, um, Good. Really Currently, that book. Right. yeah, well, Shannon, we will absolutely note both of those great recommendations in the show notes along with this episode. And thank you for your time and all that you're doing, not just for Habitat, for the nonprofit community in general. And I really appreciate you joining me on the path. Yeah, it's my pleasure. And thank you for providing such a great resource for those that are interested in transitioning to the community or that are already a part of this amazing community in Charlotte and, and beyond. Really excited to be a part of this. 
Thank you, Shannon. Much appreciated. All right. Thanks. Well, I hope you enjoyed my great conversation with Shannon and will take advantage of her advice to explore the key numbers at your nonprofit so that you can better focus your time and energy communicating to and fundraising from the right individuals and families. If you're exploring a new nonprofit opportunity, Shannon's giving you great advice there too. What great questions to ask of a future nonprofit employer about their key numbers and how they measure so that they can be successful going forward. As always, check out the show notes associated with this episode for links to the resources Shannon and I discussed. And please share this episode with others you know who are on the nonprofit path and help us build this community by subscribing to the podcast. Keep up the good work supporting whatever cause is near and dear to you. And I'll look forward to seeing you next time on the path.